Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. It is dawn, and I'm, I'm in my F-something fighter, and people are putting things like under the wheels and stuff. I don't know too much of the terminology <laughs> of Top Gun, uh, but this, I believe, is the opening title sequence or the open, opening title music, uh, and something like that, I think, is going on. So Top Gun Maverick, which uh, was released to movie theaters originally, where it out-earned like everything basically i mean it's nothing is even really close in some ways uh at least in the pandemic era i'm not sure any movie has even come close to the kind of money that this movie has made and now it is available uh to purchase on uh, streaming platforms you can get it on amazon you apparently cannot do that in switzerland we will be giving you information about what you do in switzerland uh, if you want to see top gun maverick uh, that will be made available to you privately. But it's time for the nose, and it's time for our great panel to talk about this. And then seeing Top Gun Maverick and this kind of sort of tender scene uh, between Val Kilmer's character and Tom Cruise's character made me think, wow, we should watch Val, which has been a sort of rumbled about documentary about Val Kilmer, uh, released, I believe, last year, uh, also available on Amazon. <laughs> uh, and Jeff Bezos will be joining the panel later today, too. So it's just we're just keeping it very Amazon. Uh, but we're going to talk about that as well. And when I say we, uh, whom do I mean? I mean, James Hanley, co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College. He's joining us from, I believe, Zurich. That's why we know you can't watch the movie on Amazon in Switzerland. Carolyn Payne is an actress, comedian, a dancer, I believe new car owner, maybe recent car yeah. purchaser, something like that. Uh, founder, director, and choreographer of Kinetic Dance. Pedro Soto is president and CEO of High Grade Precision Technologies. Uh, where I think they make all of the jets, like all of them, all of the jets that are used in the movies are made in Pedro's shop right there. So, I do have a fact about that that I can mention later. Oh, oh good, good. I, I figured th- I figured my arrow would strike the ground not too far from some tiny <laughs> scintilla of truth here. So, Pedro, since uh, you have the floor already, let's talk a little bit about this. This is a, a long wait for a sequel. It's 36 years uh, from uh, the first movie to the second. That amount of time has more or less kind of apparently elapsed within the reality of the second movie. Um, how did it land, as they say, in flying for you? Uh, it landed amazingly well. I mean, this movie's in my wheelhouse, but uh, getting beyond that, I just absolutely fell in love with this movie. Um, just, it, it, yeah, I mean, it, it is, a, I think it's actually the longest time between uh, sequels of any major mainstream film, um, which was incredible. But the movie in terms of, I think this movie, A, is just superior to the original. Um, it has an emotional heart, which is um, way better. And the special effects, the writing, the dialogue, the characters, I just everything is just so much better. I just, I just, just perfect summer movie for me. 
Right. And out of curiosity, I'm, I'm curious to know because I just watched it at home on my regular equipment. Mm-hmm. I mean, these Tom Cruise movies, they're really kind of made for IMAX. I mean, there's kind of the IMAX experience and there's probably whatever, however James saw it, which I'll be very yeah. interesting to hear, interested <laughs> to hear. But how, how, how did you consume this? I, I watched it. Unfortunately, I wanted to go see this in the theaters. But I couldn't go. Um, so I did see this on my TV, which is on the bigger side. And I do have a home theater system with a subwoofer. So everything was cranked up um, loud <laughs> and and it was great. I do wish and hopefully I'm, I'm this is since this is still in the theaters. I, I may try to get out to see it at some point um, for that experience. But that's how I saw it. And, and I could see I could tell that I was missing a little bit of the visceral just noise and spectacle of it by seeing it on, on a smaller screen. Okay, I have two uh, instant updates. One of them is that Spider-Man No Way Home has actually made more money last year than uh, this movie has so far made this year. And also that, oddly enough, The Color of Money, which starred Tom Cruise and Paul Newman, uh, was a sequel positioned 25 years after The Hustler, uh, the, mm-hmm. the movie that preceded it. So we still ha- we still have the advantage that you described. Now, Carolyn Payne, we've sent you to any uh, number of movies that you hated over the last, I don't know how many years it's been, or had you watched them at home. So uh, how pleased or displeased were you this time? Um, so if 10 is like, I loved it, and one is, I'm mad at you for making me watch it, this one comes in at like a five. Okay. That that would be damning with faint praise, I think, if it were any. But you have, you're sort of the fussy cat of this thing. You often sniff the food in the bowl and, you know, just walk away from it. So say a little bit more about that five. Yeah. So, I mean, it was watchable in that it held my interest. Although about like halfway through, I I realized that they had just kind of like repurposed Star Wars New Hope. Um, And and throughout most of the movie, I think one of my biggest complaints was I kind of felt like motion sick the whole time. (laughs) Like I definitely would not be an F-18 fighter pilot. I I just felt like kind of nauseous throughout most of this movie as they were like spinning upside down in their planes and the way it was filmed, really, I was like, I need a drama mean. Um, but it, I, I mean, it held my interest. Uh, I, I, I didn't fall asleep or have the urge to turn it off and just try to Google what happened. Cause that <laughs> is something that happens with a lot of things that I have to watch for the nose. Uh, I get tempted to just do that. But so, I mean, and also, I mean, it's, I have to disclose, like I've never, I think maybe I saw part of the original Top Gun uh, maybe a very long time ago. Um, so it wasn't something that I had a lot of vested interest in. Um, I mean, it stood up alone as its own movie. Uh, I, it, it was, it was fine. Mm-hmm. Like I can see why a lot of people would like it. I'm but sure they, it I'm sure they can't wait to blurb this. You know, it was fine. What do you want? What do you want from me? It was fine. Carolyn Payne, WNPR. All right. So, James, um, I do want to hear how you saw the movie, but also and I'm stealing a little bit of this from uh, Dan Coyce from Slate, uh, who I just heard talking about this. There's sort of a weird thing that goes on in the where There's a lot, in my opinion, of weird things that go on in this movie. But one of the things that happens at the start is that Ed Harris plays this general or admiral or something uh, and he's like all into drones he's the drone lord and he's just basically thinks pilots are just so last year uh, and you know this whole idea that, that the sooner we get rid of these human beings flying deadly pieces of warfare the better and then there's sort of this way in which you know Tom Cruise's character Pete Mitchell reasserts 
the human element here, you know, and the, the, the important humanity of all this. And there's a way in which that is kind of mirrored by the actual production of this movie in the sense that, you know, Cruz and all these other actors, I mean, they really, really train for this stuff and they go up in the plane. Sometimes when you see them, they're actually in one of these damn jets up in the air with a, you know, IMAX camera pointed at them or something. Uh, and, and, you know, in an era where that kind of stuff is also sort of on the way out, you just put M- Mark Ruffalo on a soundstage in, in Vancouver and then just add in everything else in a bunch of other, you know, post-production studios. There's a way in which Cruz is kind of asserting. He's a throwbacky guy anyway, right? He doesn't like stunt doubles. He doesn't. He wants to like really be uh, the guy in the movie. I, I, give me some James Haley type reactions to that. Well, I th- I think that he's uh, actually one of those few people in the industry who actually commands enough money that he can bully somebody like Paramount and actually insist that the movie play in theaters rather than. Uh, actually go on streaming within 40 days or less, actually, they wanted. And I think that he's been proved right in terms of the grosses, of course. But I think he he has much of a sort of commonality with somebody like Christopher Nolan um, in the sense of seeing theaters. I, I think that obviously um, there's something, I mean, you asked earlier how I saw it. I saw it on a big screen in a theater with Dolby Atmos, not IMAX. It's no longer playing here in IMAX, but um, it, it's certainly a film that it, it, it envelops you in the theater and it's a thrilling ride and lots of things about it are like very satisfying cinematically. And it makes me think actually that you, you talk about green screen and, and uh, paralleling it with the takeover of uh, of warfare by drones in terms of movies that are made with green screens which is very attractive to to distributors and film and film studios because it's much much cheaper um i think that this represents something really generational about how people are watching a movie i mean it, it, they did they went up in these planes with not just one IMAX camera. Unfortunately, they were digital, but still, they were IMAX cameras. There were more than one in the, some of those planes, and they really created a visceral sense that I think that those green screen CGI created environments that people have become so used to that now there's a generation of people who can actually see something different. And this really has some different things about it as a result of this sort of almost analog mechanical uh, part to it. Obviously, the CGI is there and is part of it, but I think it's a very different uh, kind of phenomenon. And I think it may be influential simply because of all the money it's made. And I think that the people who are coming to see it, uh, probably many, many of them may not have seen the original. So it's like a standalone of something that really represents a, 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 a paradigm shift, really, in a in an almost physical sense. Yeah, no, I mean, it's sort of on the surface of it, it's a weird decision because not that many people in the audience would have been saying under, under other circumstances, wow, well, I've flown F-18s and it's nothing like that. You know, they haven't really <laughs> sort of captured that. So, I mean, they're doing something else. They're rewarding us, I think, in the way that you suggest in a different way. We don't know how close that is to an approximation of flying a fighter jet, but we do know that it's maybe exciting in a different and less flat way than we sometimes feel about the, about the CGI. All right, before we uh, say more, uh, let's hear a little bit from the film. 
film, you're going to hear, um, do I have to say who everybody is? I guess I do. Uh, so this is going to be A1, Katie. Uh, you're going to hear Charles Parnell as Admiral Solomon Warlock Bates, Tom Cruise as Captain Pete Maverick Mitchell, and John Hamm as Admiral Bo Cyclone Simpson. Here we go. <laughs> What's your read, Captain? Well, sir, uh, normally this would be a cakewalk for the F-35 stealth, but the GPS jamming negates that. Uh, surface air threat necessitates a low-level laser-guided strike, tailor-made for the F-18, I figure. Two precision bombs, minimum, makes it four aircraft, flying in pairs. That is one hell of a steep climb out of there, exposing you to all the surface-to-air missiles. Will you survive that? It's a dogfight on the way home. All requirements for which you have real-world experience. Not the same mission, sir. Now. No, someone's not coming back from this. Can it be done or not? How soon before the plant becomes operational? Three weeks, maybe less. Well, it's been a while since I've flown an F-18, and I'm not sure who I trust to fly the other three, but I'll find a way to make it work. I think you misunderstand, Captain. Sir? We don't want you to fly it. We want you to teach it. Teach, sir? So I think in a way that the movie, the first movie doesn't, this movie at least posits or tries to create um, uh, the notion of a journey for the, the Maverick character. And so Pedro, the whole idea is he has to, instead of being this kind of elite loner, which he is, I think, even at the beginning of this movie, is he like living in an aircraft hangar or something? It's just like he's clearly... Yeah, you know, I, I think he's living at the end of the runway where they're testing the, uh, the plane at the beginning fixing his even older airplane, which incidentally is is Tom Cruise's own P-51 Mustang. He owns that plane. Right. Um, <laughs> and yeah, he's just there alone doing but, his thing with his old motorcycle. But there's a little bit of a different notion here about who this person is. 36 mm-hmm. years have gone by. He's still a captain. Val Kilmer's character is now an admiral and maybe even bigger than an admiral. Uh, and... You know, he's, I don't know, his credit card gets declined in bars and he's just, you know, there's this this, something slightly, slightly, slightly down at the heels here. There's a way in which an era really is passing him by or he's just getting too old to be the guy that he was, but he hasn't figured out anybody else to be. Uh, And and so this is that moment where he's going to learn something else. And I guess I'm wondering how well you think this movie kind of ultimately delivers on the implied promise that Maverick, Pete Mitchell, is going on a journey and he's going to learn how to do team building and how to transfer his skills to other people and not be such a big egoistic jerk. Um, I you don't know. know. Go ahead. I, I, the, one of the biggest kind of complaints I have about these like long between kind of reboots um, that have been happening, like like Mad About You or all these shows where the characters come back 20 or 30 years later is how, um, you know, they're about, they're, they're all kind of depressing because everyone's so old and everything's so different. And they're either trying to like be how they were a long time ago, or, uh, you know, they're just old and it's a different thing and it just feels sad. And I think that because Tom Cruise is kind of ageless, because I think that was sort of the intent. I I think this works as this journey um, in in a lot of ways. I, I think it I think it, it pays off. I think they do a very good job of him being rather than kind of old and obsolete. I think it's that he's just kind of more static, and there's unresolved things he needs to really get through 
to be able to kind of get through, you know, the final phase of his life. And I think that um, they do that really well. And I think that like the opening scenes, you can see that like people really still respect him. So he's not washed up. Obviously the, the brass always hate him, but that's been him, his, his signature the whole life. But you can see like in the, the control room scene at the beginning, we can see with Hondo, with all these people, like everyone really, really loves him. He's just a guy that's just been kind of doing the same thing forever. And and he needs to resolve the relationships in his life so he can kind of live his quote best life at the end of the movie. So Carolyn, you know, as, as you may know from our communications before uh, the show, I have this sort of theory that nobody in this movie has much reality except for Maverick, that everybody in the movie is essentially kind of refracted through the lenses of Maverick's eyes that nobody, nobody has, um, nobody's character is particularly well developed. And Ed Harris is there just to be this hard ass guy who wants to convert to drones. That whole idea is immediately dropped by the way, after the first few minutes of the movie, John Hamm is another hard ass guy who seems to maybe, you know, convert a little bit along the way. But, you know, once again, not a well-developed character. And I think most of the flyers are kind of like that. Bill Pullman's son, Lewis, plays the kind of nerdy, bespectacled guy whose name is Bob. He doesn't have a cool handle. Um, and But, I mean, nothing's really done with that. I mean, maybe an exception is Jennifer Connelly, who plays kind of the love interest in this. She plays mm-hmm. Penny, who owns a bar, and, and they appear to have had some relationships in the past that ended in heartbreak, maybe even multiple times. But Carolyn, even that part, I don't think it's written especially well. I think you could argue that Jennifer Connelly takes it and makes that character something other than just something that is in Maverick's field of vision. I was just sort of wondering what you're thinking about the characters, the acting, and maybe specifically Connolly. Yeah, I mean, I do very strongly feel like this movie, you are not watching this movie for character development or Oscar-winning like acting performances. This movie is clearly just an action movie that has a sense of nostalgia and... Uh, and that weird football scene that looks like an Abercrombie ad from like <laughs> circa 2000. Uh, I, I guess, yes, an argument could be made that Jennifer Connelly delivers the performance with the most heart. Um, I, I wasn't like wowed by that. And I found myself just not even caring. I had no, I, I was not invested at all in their relationship. Um, I, I think that for me, one of the strongest performances was Val Kilmer. I think that scene with Tom Cruise and Val Kilmer was probably, uh, you know, probably one of the most well done and, and interesting as far as performances go, um, especially like knowing kind of more into Val Kilmer uh, and his his health struggles and everything and how they made that part of his character. Uh, that was interesting. I just felt like, you know, this movie, it's its shallow. It's shallow, and if you find it fun to watch, like, cool planes flying on a cool mission and, you know, it, it, that it's fine on that level. But, I mean, I didn't go into it expecting any sort of depth, and it definitely delivered with, you know, just kind of surface-level action fun. All right. I'm, James, I'm just going to let you react to what we've said so far. Well, I think I, I agree with Carolyn, and I think that that's actually a very strong sort of, uh, you know, uh, corporate decision. They're not going to, in a film like this, which is really attempting to um, reinvent a kind of genre, um, 
a, a different kind of action movie and it's going to have certain elements like one of the issues is that that they worried about in the first thing is you know well is it just going to draw guys to come and see it and so you know well, they say oh well okay we've got to have some uh, a woman in it to you know to draw some more women into the audience you know these are very sort of commercial decisions that get made about a film like this and i think that it's really I mean, I found it interesting and entertaining as an action movie, but it's all, except for that scene with Val Kilmer, which for many reasons is is kind of touching. It really would seem character development would seem to stop the action and actually trip the film up. Um, it's one of those curious things because I mean, I'm always watching movies with the idea that I want to know more about character and I want character development. But in a movie like this, you can see how the thinking would be that, okay, this is going to detract from the attention of an audience that is seeking the next thrill. And um, the only thing character-wise really is kind of oblique, which is Tom Cruise himself, which is the fact that he can play this part and be in this part after so long in the industry, playing different parts since the original Top Gun and he looks so capable, he looks so good, and he's playing the part very seriously. He is sort of the character, the only character, I think, in the movie that has any significance. Yes, I, I totally agree with that. I actually do believe that, as I said, I feel like almost nobody has any existential status in this movie besides Tom Cruise, besides Pete Mitchell. He is sort of the, the way in which everything is understood. And that kind of maybe leads to me to maybe the last thing we'll have time for, which is just... I'd love to hear each of you, starting with you, Pedro, kind of reflect on your own relationship with Tom Cruise, so to speak. I mean, I should, I'll begin by saying I'm actually kind of a Tom Cruise fan, or at least I know if Tom Cruise is starring in a movie, you know, it's probably going to be reasonably good. It's going to be professionally handled. As you've pointed out, he's kind of a control freak, and, and he made them reshoot the football scene <laughs> that Carolyn was talking about, which Carolyn, in her innocence, may not realize was necessary because of a volleyball scene in the original movie. But there's sort of a sense in which, whether it's Jerry Maguire or Rain Man or, or you know, A Few Good Men or Collateral or one of the big franchise things like Mission Impossible, I feel like Tom Cruise is... He's going to give me something that I've learned to expect from him, and he's probably not going to disappoint me very much, partly because my expectations aren't too high. I'm not you know, expecting some master thespian to come out there, um, but also because, you know, I don't know. He just He's really, really dedicated to being Tom Cruise in a way that most of us probably aren't as dedicated to being ourselves. But I'd love to hear from all of you. Pedro, get us started. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I think that, like, on the balance, most of the Tom Cruise movies that are out there, I I really enjoy. Um, I think that, you know, my my issues with the sort of the whole Scientology thing and and his personal persona is, is has always made it a little more complicated for latter day Tom Cruise for me to be as sort of unequivocal of sort of like a fan. Um, but I will say that um, I think the 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 earlier stuff. Um, going up to sort of the early 2000s, I, I think he was pretty wide ranging and there was a lot of pretty really great films and different types of films. Um, you know, I, I absolutely love A Few Good Men. Um, that's one of my my all time favorites. Um, 
but you know he you know he did Jerry Maguire right he was he he did I think he was you know he had cameos in in like Austin Powers uh, Gold Member he was an interview with a vampire I mean just lots of different things so I really enjoyed that I think the sort of latter day Tom Cruise has really narrowed his focus to basically doing like Mission Impossible uh, something like Top Gun you know I don't think we're gonna see like an indie movie Tom Cruise movie from here on out you don't think uh, he's going to do another paul thomas anderson movie like magnolia exactly no, no, I, I, I think I, I agree i think he's going to work with like chris mcquary i think he's going to work with like basically his 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 sort of team of people to do you know these these big budget movies and may, maybe it'll be proven wrong maybe top gun will give him a little freedom or something uh but i think that's you know to be seen all right carolina how about you how, how do you and tom cruise get along well, I don't think we would, but um, <laughs> I, I, I'm not really a Tom Cruise fan per se. Uh, yeah, I, I think that like nowadays I kind of just still picture him like jumping up and down on the couch on like the talk show. Uh, I mean, I liked him in some stuff. Um, I mean, I really loved Interview with a Vampire uh, and I think he was really good in that uh for me that worked that tom cruise worked in that um but i i'm sitting as pedro was talking i was trying to think about like movies that i've seen tom cruise in like i know he is in some ways he's kind of this like last great hollywood star you know or movie star really who does these like major box office hits and uh i i can't really think of anything that i'm like yes i loved i i, I love tom cruise um but I mean, I guess I just don't really think about him all that much. <laughs> <laughs> well, he doesn't think about you that much either. So I think it's I, okay. I guess you know what? Yeah, yeah. we're fair. We're yeah, fair. he's tried to put you out of his mind <laughs> using his Thetan skills. Well, I did recently read that um, apparently Brad Pitt has a list of actors that he does not ever want to work with, and um, allegedly Tom Cruise is on it following there so i'm sure val val kilmer <laughs> is or was too but uh so that might be mutual yes yeah exactly <laughs> so um so james yeah i mean you know carol had talked about Cruz being kind of the last of a certain kind of movie star and you do hear that a lot right that he's kind of this guy who really can just sort of carry a movie just by his tom cruiseness yeah, I, I think uh, Carolyn hit the nail on the head with that. I mean, I, I think that he, I mean, I think of somebody in the film industry of the past, like Cary Grant or something like that, that, that you know, these are personality. He's, he, Tom Cruise is a personality who appears in movies and he's really such a figure that he eclipses any thought of, I guess, who he is as a human being. And I mean, there have been some pretty, <clears throat> I don't know, irritating aspects of it that have popped out over the years of his his real life, if you like. But um, he is, I can't think of anybody else who's in the industry right now who commands that sort of image that um, he really is on his own and that when he appears in a film, he's really appearing as himself, as the the persona he's decided to assume as an actor. And it doesn't really change. And I think he's very talented in doing that. But certainly it's not going to be something that you're really going to know much about the character beyond being presented as the hero. He doesn't do a lot of subtext. Um, so, yes, um, I, I just want to sort of close out this segment by saying one last thing, which is that after watching this movie, 
And I really enjoyed it. I, I was very, very entertained. Uh, and I think the first movie is terrible. I think it's like a really a bad movie. Uh, I didn't see it when it came out. I watched it recently. I think it's awful. But um, then I encountered this thing because like, I watched the movie and I thought, you know, they're just sort of real weird the way nobody else is real except for Pete Mitchell. Uh, and I encountered this online kind of conspiracy theory fan idea that basically Tom Cruise's character dies in the first five minutes and, and he's dead for the rest of the movie and this is just like some kind of Jacob's Ladder type weird you know sort of post death thing hallucination thing or something uh, and I thought I'm sure that's not true from the point of view of the filmmakers but the movie makes a lot more sense if that's the case um, so if you decide to watch it again Top Gun Maverick uh, just watch it with the understanding that maybe everybody's dead or not real anyway okay we'll take Top a break Gun <laughs> yes, we're there. Top Gun Matrix exactly uh, and we know by the way that there's going to be Top Gun 3, Top Gun Assisted Living, where uh, finally Pete Mitchell gets old and it turns out that Jennifer Connelly's daughter is really his kid and she's a pilot now. And I mean, you could just write this whole movie out in the back of a cocktail napkin. All right, we've got to take a break. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about Val. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right, we're back. Uh, we are here with our terrific panel, uh, James Hanley, Carolyn Payne, Pedro Soto. So watching... Ta- ah! <laughs> I just got a, a Kenny Loggins hiccup in my brain. Uh, so uh, watching uh, Top Gun Maverick, there is this kind of tender scene uh, with Val Kilmer and Tom Cruise. Uh, he's playing the same character, Iceman. He still comes up on, on Pete Mitchell's phone as Ice. Uh, but now he's like a big shot admiral and he looks, he's kind of been looking after uh, Tom Cruise's character all the way through his life and making getting him out of scrapes and stuff like that and valuing him. And then they have this kind of talk. And it is they've written Val Kilmer's own actual medical condition, which is throat cancer, into the role. And his wife says it's come back or something like that as, as Maverick walks into the room. Uh, and I believe that they – although they did use – uh, Kilmer's voice, they had to technologically kind of sweeten it up a little bit anyway. Uh, he has great difficulty talking these 
days. And um, it just made me think, wow, because there's just something about this. It's just it's not like the rest of the movie kind of grabs you just in the way that you know about these two men, one of whom, by the way, is a Scientologist and the other of whom is apparently kind of imbued with the Christian science uh, faith of his family. Uh, and they're both very difficult people, <laughs> apparently. And I thought we should watch Val. Val is this 2021 documentary directed by Leo Scott and Ting Poo, written and photographed by Val Kilmer. It is absolutely 100 percent Val Kilmer's attempt to tell his own story. But I'll let you tell I'll let him tell you uh, about that. Uh, Katie, this is B1 from Val. My name is Val Kilmer. I've lived a magical life. And I've captured quite a bit of it. I was the first guy I knew to own a video camera. I have thousands of hours of videotapes and film reels that I've shot throughout my life and career. I've wanted to tell a story about acting for a very long time. About the place where you end and the character begins. About truth. An illusion. Now that it's more difficult to speak, I want to tell my story more than ever. A story about my life. That is also not my life. So the first thing that I have to tell you is that's Jack Kilmer, Val Kilmer's son, who is speaking for him. Val Kilmer cannot uh, deliver things in in that kind of a voice these days. Um, I think in some ways the most important thing is that story, that line at the end, a story about my life that is also not my life. Because, James, this movie, it's a very peculiar movie. It's a kind of autobiographical documentary except not exactly autobiographical. It, it is uh, made possible partly by the fact that Val Kilmer apparently was a very early adopter of handheld video cameras just for normal consumer use uh, and, and maybe movie cameras before that and has therefore recorded just insane amounts of footage of his own life. Uh, I don't know. How did you, what did you think of all this? Well, I actually found it a fascinating film uh, for lots of reasons. Um, I actually like Val Kilmer a lot um, for a number of films, but um, it's very interesting. Um, and the touching part of it is that he comes across as being an honest and happy person amidst a lot of adversity and a lot of strange things that have happened, um, including his exclusion from Hollywood circles because he was labeled as difficult. And um, he really, in a way, at the start of his career, it's almost as if he could have been a Tom Cruise type of actor in films in that he had these striking looks and a personality that could easily have carried that. But he clearly didn't want that. And he wanted to do the very thing that um, is, is not the case with Tom Cruise, which is developing character, depth of character that really resonates in a way that is very personal to him. And at the same time, you feel a sense of loss for him. Uh, it, it, you know, it, it, you feel that he's unfulfilled in some ways, but then on another level, he's saying how happy he is. And I must say, the, 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 throughout the movie, he seems to be radiating that. He kind of radiates a good feeling about himself. 
much as I might disagree with a lot of things like praying away the cancer and uh, the not acknowledging that he had cancer at all, in fact, and blaming it on the radiation treatment that he had, there's a lot of unreality there, which is kind of strange. But at the same time, he comes across as an extraordinary survivor. And I have to say, my own sort of experience, I, in particular, The Doors, uh, which I know wasn't a huge success as a film, but I remember us showing it in 70 millimeter at Sydney Studio and sitting in the middle of the theatre and being completely lost into, in his character, as if he were, uh, you know, he were the real Jim Morrison and he's really like took on that 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 role and some other later roles of his so it's a really interestingly complex thing i'm really glad i saw it right i think it's in the taffy uh, producer aiken piece uh, from the new york times about this long feature about uh, about val kilmer that i circulated i think she says that that jim morrison performance is so powerful she actually started to forget what jim morrison really looked like uh now yeah. her idea of jim morrison is val kilmer which i think an iconic performance can actually do although with somebody as indelible as morrison that's quite a statement. So, so Carolyn, you've already kind of hinted a little bit at your thoughts about Val Kilmer, but this this documentary, I don't know, it's telling a story. I'm not exactly sure it is the story of Val Kilmer. If so, an awful lot is being selectively left, left out. But just describe the experience of watching it. Well, it's kind of like watching somebody's life through their own Instagram reels and TikToks. Like, he's presenting what he wants you to see and what he wants to remember and, you know, be nostalgic about. And uh, so, I mean, it's not, it, it's not so much of a documentary as it's really just like kind of this autobiographical, uh, you know, memory piece of that, you know, where he just compiles a bunch of, of old videos he have, which is interesting because he was in an era where you didn't have that much. Um, but I was just really, I turned this off after finishing it and I felt really overwhelmingly sad uh, just because I, I think, like I said in an email to all of you, I think as an artist, like you set out wanting to create and you have this vision of like really fulfilling that and leaving this mark. And uh, I felt that this documentary kind of showed a man who felt incomplete in what he has wanted to do and he's now looking for other ways to like leave his mark and and be an artist because you know he was started out as this uh Juilliard trained promising actor and his career wasn't what he wanted uh you know he never became that hamlet or the and never was like marlon brando although it was interesting his story of working with marlon brando turning into a disaster uh I, it just, I, I felt really bummed out by this um, and also kind of felt like it was sort of an odd, it just was odd to kind of watch somebody create this like documentary of their own life in such an angled way. Right. You know, in a way, there is a real parallelism, a Papoulian through line from the, from Val to Top Gun Maverick, particularly in the sense that nobody else seems particularly real in this movie either. It's really a movie in which mm -hmm. Val Kilmer, I don't even think his kids seem particularly real. And he doesn't really seem to be very interested in anybody else either. I mean, what's it like to work with Tom Cruise? Uh, who knows? They don't. He doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't care about anything like that. He's not going to tell you anything like that. There just isn't. And, and what there is, I think, is this sense. And the other sort of Papoulian through line is. Theoretically, 
Maverick has to learn team building, and he has to learn how to incorporate his own abilities into a larger team, which he's never been particularly good at. And this is, I think, very much the story of Al Kilmer, too, not being able to integrate uh, his incredible good looks and his prodigious acting ability and his incredible commitment to roles into this kind of team process of making a movie. Uh, you know, it's only hinted at here, but if you read more about it, you just realize this guy's just incredibly difficult. I mean, Daniel Day-Lewis is is like that, you know, and we, when he did My Left Foot, he made the crew carry him around on the set when they weren't filming because he refused to not be that guy, even to go up and go get a drink of water or something, you know. But somehow or other, Daniel Day-Lewis doesn't make it impossible for everybody else <laughs> and make them all feel paranoid and like they really want to be out of this situation. And I feel like Kilmer you know, hinted at in there is the fact that Kilmer could never really do that. Uh, so, Pedro, how about you? Tell us about uh, how Val worked for you. Well, I well, I think to, to continue that thought um, of the team building and working with others, I think um, having a disease such as cancer and being as, as impacted as he is and you see in the film um, now forces and seeing, and I have actually, you know, personal experience with family member of my father who had a, you know, tracheotomy and um, lost his ability to speak um, due to COPD and, um, you know, and seeing sort of the, the, the requirements of having really to, to, you know, having someone who was a very consummate self-sufficient person having to rely on now a team of people to kind of get them through uh, the life. And you can see the whole creation of this film and his family and everyone, he now has to rely on, a great many people, including as fans, I would say, um, to be able to kind of have his life uh, have some sort of of, of quality. Um, I, I the movie was was definitely um, striking for me. I think it really is. I really felt it was um, Val Kilmer needing to come to terms with where he is, and with Val Kilmer, sort of the actor, Val Kilmer, the person and a way of sort of coming to a statement of being okay with with his life and, and being sort of satisfied with it. I think that um, you can see in the film, you can see that there was an arc that he was trying to take and go with this, you know, the Mark Twain thing at the end and, you know, that he felt that he was on his way to, to do that and that um, cancer derailed it. And so this is, I think, his attempt to kind of reestablish himself personally. So it felt, even though it was a film that was solely about Val Kilmer, I think that, or a documentary, I think it really, it really was just himself trying to figure out himself. Right. That's a, a great point. Uh, and the, I think the film is brutally honest about the present. I mean, there's a scene where he's like signing autographs in some horrible, mm-hmm. you know, movie fan convention. And then he just he, he gets worn out and they have to sort of take him someplace else. And I think that's where you see him like puke into a waste paper basket or something because yeah. uh, he's just so wiped out from this disease. It's much more honest about the present than it is about the past, uh, which he's sort of really, I think, carefully curated in a way. Mm-hmm. But it's it's you certainly want to watch Watch this. If you do watch it, then find the Taffy Brodesser Aiken um, profile because it, it actually does sort of patch in a bunch of stuff that I, I think is left out, perhaps lamentably, from the movie. But the, the movie itself, I think, I think we all agree is pretty engrossing. All right, let's uh, take a break. We'll have uh, time to make some quick recommendations on the other side. I am a cinematographer. Oh, I am a cinematographer 
All right, time to say our thank yous to Cat Passers not around right now. Today's show was technically produced by the big kid, Katie Tularski, call sign Coach T. Uh, and the episode was uh, produced by Jonathan McNichol, call sign Pants. You know, he needs a better, is that what this is called, a call sign? Is that what those things are called? Who knows? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. yeah, it's a call sign. Okay. You need a pants, you need something better than that. We'll have to work on that. Pants, is, it's not going to look good on the side of your F-18. Uh, all right. So time to make some recommendations. Pedro Soto, why don't you get us going? Sure. Um in, in the vein of uh, sort of aerospace and aviation, um, actually, just rewatched again. It um, came out in 2016, but it's a PBS uh, series called City in the Sky. And it's not about military av- aviation, but it's about commercial aviation. Um, it's a three-episode series really about what it takes to um, transport. The reason they call it City in the Sky is that at any given time, um, in the world, there are approximately 1 million people in the air, um, which is a crazy thought, but um, it's basically a million person city in the sky. And from how the planes are built to how it what it takes to get them and control them all and transfer and make sure they all get there um, to seeing what it takes to actually take a horse from one country to another. Um, it's a really great uh, PBS documentary that if you've ever been interested in um, what it takes to get you from uh, one city to another in the air, um, that you'll you'll greatly enjoy it. All right. Thanks so much for that. Carolyn Payne, what have you got for us? Um, okay. So I watched on Netflix Trainwreck, the Woodstock 99 documentary. And I was a teenager when, Wood- when Woodstock 99 was happening. And I remember really wanting to go. Mm-hmm. My father had gone to Woodstock in 69, and I felt like I – you know, it was my birthright to get to go to this Woodstock. My parents were like, absolutely no. Uh, after watching this documentary, I'm really glad that they had the common sense to not allow their young teenager to go to this madness. Um, it's a really fascinating documentary uh, about uh, this festival, how they try to take that like peace, love and music of Woodstock 69 and bring it into the generation of the kids of the 90s and how it failed um it has really fascinating interviews with the musicians and um i mean it it basically just makes woodstock 99 look like the first fire festival (laughs) and it was literally on fire um so it's it's definitely worth the watch especially if you're like me and you're kind of of that generation where you were a teenager that this was like marketed to and had all your bands and singers that you loved um and it's also just kind of appalling the way that these the the people it it just is appalling for the millennial generation, <laughs> but uh, as one of them. But it, it's it's good. It's a really it's an interesting watch. All right, um, you've really sold it, sort of. Um, uh, James <laughs> James Hanley, how about you? What are you going to recommend to us? Um, <clears throat> I think a few years ago I mentioned a book by a writer, German writer Peter Willeben, um, who wrote a book called The Hidden Life of Trees which was absolutely fascinating in itself. But he's written a new book called The Heartbeat of Trees, which is really about forests and trees and how they exist on the planet and then what our relationship is with trees. 
And it's not dry and uh, scientific, if you like, at all. It's really an extraordinary, insightful piece of writing um, that's really amazing to read. The Heartbeat of Trees, uh, Peter Willaben. And then the other thing is a movie which uh, has been out a while, but I don't think many people saw looking at the grosses. Uh, it's called Memoria with Tilda, Tilda Swinton. Um, it was described in the original publicity as being science fiction, which is really not. It's kind of like a mystery, really, but an absolutely beguiling, extraordinary piece of filmmaking. That is one of those films that actually manages to get you to slow down and go at the movie's pace, which is very contemplative in terms of just watching what's happening and picking up the details. Memoria with Tilda Swinton, my favorite. Okay, great. So I thought I would try to recommend the uh, one each of a movie connected to the two movie stars we talked about. I'll start with Val Kilmer. You know, if you, I mean, most people have seen Heat by now, my, the Michael Mann thing. But watch it again with a real focus on what Kilmer's doing in this movie, because it is hard to stand out in a movie <laughs> that has Pacino and De Niro kind of going head to head, and is surrounded by just other terrific actors, including two uh, Hartford-born stalwarts, Amy Brenneman and Diane Venora. Um, but but Kilmer is doing amazing stuff, and I think it's in the uh, in the Brodessa Aiken piece. She says like the most chilling moment in the movie is really when a cop is looking at his fake ID and kind of what he does with all that. But he has a kind of stillness in the movie that is, I think, really, really different from the energy that's coming out from all the other people. Uh, and so he's just, he really is terrific and very magnetic in it. Uh, and then for Tom Cruise, and I realized that I realized a lot of years have passed and there are probably some ways in which the kind of sex worker part of this is politically incorrect at this point. Uh, and it probably should be, I, I would add. But the movie Risky Business, which is like, you know, one of the, the big kind of Tom Cruise launch movies, it's really funny. <laughs> and he's really funny. Uh, and God knows Joe Pantaleano, Joey Pans, uh, as Guido the Killer Pimp. I mean, he will be Guido the Killer Pimp for the rest of his life, uh, is hilarious. Uh, and so, I, you know, I mean, it's there aren't a lot of really funny Tom Cruise comedies, <laughs> but this is one. So ris Risky Business and Heat. Uh, and you can cover both of these actors uh, in one weekend. Thanks for listening today. Thanks to everybody who helped out, especially Coach T. And we will be back on Monday.